Psalm 19 is our passage today. And so if you uh, have your Bibles, you can turn there. And we're going to be looking at this uh, psalm. So let me read it for you and then we'll uh, pray. Uh, The heavens declare the glory of God and the skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they display knowledge. Uh, There is no speech or language where a voice is not heard. The voice goes out to all the earth and the words to the words ends of the world. In heavens he has pinched a tent for the sun, which is like a bridegroom coming forth from his pavilion, like a champion rejoicing to run his courts. It rises at one end of the heavens and makes its circuit to the other, and nothing is hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The ordinances of the Lord are sure and altogether righteous. They are more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, than honey from the comb. By them, this is your servant warned, in keeping them with a great reward. Who can discern his errors? Forgive my hidden faults. Keep your servants also from willful sins, that they may not rule over me. Then I will be blameless, innocent of your transgre- of great transgressions. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you again for this psalm. As the psalmist is writing and reflecting upon the nature and creation. And begins to ask the question that all of us ask. Which is your relevance. Do you matter? Do you exist? And for us living in the 21st century, we have so much that we think we know, and yet we know so little. And this question is a question we all ask at some point in our life. And even as Christians, maybe who have grown up in the church, this is a lingering question. Do you matter in what goes on? And so I pray, Lord, that this question that we're asking would be answered in your word and that you would guide us and lead us this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. If you look at the internet, uh, one of the things that you can always Google is uh, stupid things people do. <laughs> and if you ever Google that, what you'll find it are a bunch of pictures of stupid things people do. And sometimes when people do stupid things, they're, they're often hilarious and, and oftentimes uh, pretty dangerous. I saw a guy who was using a, a friend's back as a board for a, a saw. And so he was literally using an electric saw, and the friend was holding it up using his back. Uh, I saw a, a pregnant woman skateboarding in a skate park, and I said, that, that seems pretty dangerous. Or a guy uh, using duct tape to duck his, um, to uh, repair his flat tire. Now, when you think about all these stupid things that people do, you, you just assume that people are just dumb sometimes, right? The people are, uh, are, are, you know, that's what stupid people do. They do stupid things. But the funniest thing about uh, these stupid things are they're not always done by stupid people. That the funniest stories are done by people who think that they're smart. I think about a a guy who's sitting on a ledge of a branch and, and literally he's cutting himself off the branch. And that's what people sometimes do. You say, how can people do that? Well, I heard a story about five guys who were um, on a plane. And it was a, a, a kid, uh, a pastor, a doctor, a pilot, and a lawyer. And as they were flying across uh, in this pilot, 
uh, on this airplane. The pilot came on the intercom and said, uh, guys, we have a problem. Uh, the plane is about to go down, and there are only four parachutes on the plane. You guys have to decide who's going to uh, uh, jump. And so the pilot took one of the four parachutes, and he jumped off the plane. Three were left. So the doctor said, you know, I've saved people my entire life, so I think I should get one. So he grabbed the parachute quickly, and he jumped off. The lawyer said, you know, I'm the smartest man in the world, and I've won hundreds of cases, so I should get one. And he grabbed uh, a pack, and he jumped out. Well, finally, the pastor looked at the little kid and said, you know, I lived a long life, and, and I've know that if I die, I'm going to go to heaven. So why don't you take the last parachute? And the little kid looked at the pastor and said, no, pastor, don't have to worry. Uh, you could take one and I'll take the other one. The smartest man in the world just jumped off with my backpack. Now, when I thought of that story, I said, you know what? We think we're really smart, don't we? We really think we know it all. But when it comes down to it, we really know little. The Bible has a word for this. Uh, it, the Bible calls that person a fool. Uh, we see this uh, in the Bible over and over again. <coughs> the worst criticism that you could uh, put on somebody uh, is somebody who's a fool. In Psalm 14, verse 1, it says, A fool say says in his heart, there is no God. In Psalm 53, verse 1, it says, A fool says in his heart, there is no God. And even uh, in, in the New Testament, when Jesus was talking about uh, saying something out in anger, one of the things that, that comes out is, is this idea of you fool. Well, in the Bible, a fool is not somebody who is not intelligent. But a fool in the Bible is someone who desires to live his own way apart from God. <coughs> The Hebrew word for fool is nabah. And it's, the connotation is this, of moral perversity rather than weakness of internet. It's somebody who desires to say, you know what, I don't need God in my life. A fool says in his heart that there is no God. It's not that he or she denies the existence of God. He or she lives as if God does not exist. You know, there are a lot of people who are atheists, philosophically. They deny God's existence. But there are a lot of people who I would call practical atheists. That they live as if God has no relevance in their life. The Hebrew word nabal is often referred as an impious person who has no perception of ethical or religious truth. The meaning of this text is not unintelligent people who do not believe in God. Rather, in the meaning of the text in, in Psalm 14, is sinful people who do not believe in God. You know, if you think about it from the very beginning of, uh, of mankind, really the whole question of God's existence is really the question that, that, that mankind has asked. But mankind has always assumed God's existence in some way. It's, it's really in the, in the modern ages where we are kind of wrestling philosophically, uh, rationally, whether God exists or not. And there's a whole rise of, of uh, not just atheists, but what we call militant atheists. Um, there's a, a magazine called Wire Magazine. And the front page of that was entitled, The New Atheists, Church of Nonbelievers. Uh, the interesting thing about uh, the new atheists is that it's not just about arguments, but it's also about attitude. 
Richard Dawkins is a biology professor, leads one of these sort of militant groups, and he says this, I'm quite keen on the politics of persuading people of virtue, of atheism. The number of non-religious people in the, in the U.S. is something near to 30 million, uh, uh, to 10, uh, 30 million more than... Uh, rather than 20 million. That's more than all the Jews in the world put together. I think we're in the same position as the gay movement was a few decades ago. There was a need for people to come out. The more people who come out, the more people had courage to come out. And I think that's the case with atheists. They're more numerous than anyone realizes. Now, one of the interesting things about this article, it talks about sort of this rise of the new atheists. Now, the interesting thing about atheism, though, according to Pew Research recently, is that atheism is, isn't actually growing. That people are becoming more spiritual, not less. And if you think about it, all the way throughout the world, people have just sort of assumed God's existence. And I think for most people, if you were to ask uh, a common person on the street, they would also pretty much say something like, yeah, I may, I may be more of an agnostic than an atheist. Well, so where does this sort of this idea of atheism, how, how does it sort of garner steam in our day? And I think a lot of it has to do with uh, sort of this uh, overplaced uh, value on rational thinking as well as scientific method. That science has sort of replaced God. And so we think that science has disproved God. But here's the problem with science. That science itself is limited. The definition of scientific method is this, that is based on garnering evidence, empirical, measurable evidence, subject to specific principle of reasoning. In other words, what scientific method is, is collecting data and analyzing data in, in a particular uh, uh, a, a test that is, that is repeatable and, and so forth. And it's based on natural law. The problem with scientific method is that it doesn't answer the deeper question of the meaning of those things. As um, Tim Keller in his book, Making Sense of God, says this, the point is rather than science alone cannot serve as a guide for human society. Science is a magnificent material force, but it is not a teacher of morals. It can perfect machinery, but it adds no moral restraints to protect society from the misuse of machinery. Here's what science can do. Science can observe something and see how it works. But it can't tell us why it works. Or it can't tell us the morality of how we control what it works. And so a life without God begs the question, is there a higher authority to what we do with science? In other words, science is, is, is empirical, it's observable. But God is much more beyond that. And when you think about the reality of God, it, it, the definition of God is, is pretty, uh, it's, it's pretty large if you think about it. Because as Christians, uh, when we think about God, it, it is incomprehensible. Uh, but people have tried to define God. Uh, Westminster Confession had this definition of God. It said this, there is one but one only living and true God who is infinite in being and perfection. A most pure spirit, invisible, without body parts or passions, immutable, immense, eternal, incomprehensible, almighty, most wise, most holy, most free. And it goes on and on to describe this nature of God. And yet, even in the description of God, it's still limited in its understanding of God. See, I, I think science can do a good job of helping us understand some of the, the way things work. 
but it doesn't tell us the reason behind why it works. And so as this question, does God's existence matter? I think the psalmist in Psalm 19 begins to answer that. And he gives us three important things to look at. Because when you look at God's existence, it's almost like an ant trying to understand humanity. I mean, the, 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 the mind of a person is so small compared to the, the grandeur of who God is. But one of the things that we, we begin to see is this. You can't prove the existence of God, nor can you disprove the existence of God. It's beyond the realm of empirical science. So what we can do is we can observe and sort of point out some clues to God's existence. And there's a rational understanding of God's existence. Does the existence of God matter? And hopefully as we look at this passage today, we'll see not only does it matter, it's essential for all of life. So in Psalm, 1, in Psalm 19... The psalmist is sitting down, and, and I, I could imagine a guy uh, kind of sitting down with a notepad and just observing the stars. And he's waking up early in the morning, and he sees the sunrise. And then he stays by the, by, by the horizon and sees the sunset. And he looks at the mountains, looks at the trees, and he begins to ask the question, where did all this come from? And so in Psalm 19, verses 1 through 6, basically... The psalmist comes to the conclusion that everything we see is a declaration of God's existence. So the first point is this. If God exists, creation matters. He says in verse 1, the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day they put forth speech. Night after night they display knowledge. There is no speech or language where his voice is not heard. In other words, when you look at the stars, you look at the sky, you look at the sunset, you begin to ask the question, what is this? The sort of the aesthetic beauty that we see. Is this all by accident? I remember uh, as a little boy, um, we would take family trips, and we would get in, in, in our, uh, my parents had a station wagon, and we'd get in the station wagon, we would drive to the desert, and, and we would, so, you know, uh, go camping sometimes, and we would look outside, and here in Southern California, it's hard to see stars, but when you go into the desert, you can see all these stars, or you go by the beach and, and, you, and you hear the rolling uh, waves. And you begin to sort of feel the breeze of the wind blowing. And you ask the question. There's, it's a metaphysical question. There must be more to life than this. And you're overwhelmed with the beauty of nature itself. And one of the things that the, the psalmist says is that that's a clue to God's existence. Through creation, we can see that not only does God exist, but that God is a particular type of God who creates things in beauty. But let me sort of kind of unpack this a little bit. That when you look at creation, there are three sort of what I would call uh, arguments for God's existence. And even though we don't have time to unpack all of this in detail, let me just kind of lead you to some, some things to think about. The first clue is what I call the causality, uh, essential causality. And basically this says this, when you look at the universe, essentially a powerful reminder of God's existence. Because the question we ask is, how did this material, physical universe get there? As you think about this question, you have to ask, how does something exist? Well, everything that exists has a cause. 
And so as you think about it, as you realize animals uh, come from uh, other animals, plants come from seeds, babies come from parents, everything has a cause and is contingent on everything else. So when we look at sort of the, the nature of the universe, we ask what was the self-sufficient first cause? What was the thing that created all things? Now, most scientists would point to the origin of sort of being the Big Bang. Uh, but, but there's a question about that. Where did the Big Bang even come from? Um, Francis uh, Collins of the Genome Project writes this. Uh, he says, we have this very solid conclusion that the universe had an origin. 15 billion years ago, the universe began with an unimaginable bright flash of energy from, from a small point. That implies that before that, there was nothing. He says, I can't imagine how nature in its case, the universe, could have created itself. The very fact that the universe had a beginning implies that someone was able to begin it. And it seems to me that it was outside the realm of nature. In other words, something immaterial created something that is material. And so we have to ask the question, what is the first cause? And, and we as Christians always have come to the point, or deists, that, that the first cause was God himself, who's an infinite being, who's an immaterial being. All material and finite things have a cause. And God, by that definition, is immaterial and infinite. Therefore, God is the cause of, of all things. Even the French uh, skeptic Voltaire once said, I shall always be convinced uh, that a watch proves a watchmaker and that the universe proves a God. So what the psalmist is saying is this. As he's looking at nature itself, as he's looking at creation, as the sun rises, as the sun sets, as, as he looks at the mountains, as he looks at the beaches, as he looks at the trees, as he looks at the stars, the question is, is what's the cause of all this? Well, there's a second clue, and it's called the design argument. Not only is something must have a first cause, but there's a, there's a design to what we see. That behind every designer, or behind every design is a designer. Um, so let me sort of uh, lay out the argument. Imagine, let's say you had a Coke can. By looking at the can, we can deduce that this was not some serious uh, uh, of random uh, series of, of events that created this can. It is easier to see that some people designed this Coke can. In the same way, when you look at the nature of the universe, you begin to see that the universe is complex and, in, uh, and incredible design. For life to be sustained on Earth, something have to ha has to happen. A right combination of light, gravitational constant, and a distance from the sun has to be precise for human life to be sustained. Dr. Francis uh, Collins um, says, when you look at the perspective of a scientist at the universe, it looks as if it knew we were coming. There are 15 constants, gravitational constant, various constants about strong and weak nuclear forces, etc. Et they have precise value. If any one of these constants was off even one part in a million, or in some cases, one part of a million million, the universe could not have actually come to the point as we see it. Matter would not have been able to coalesce, and there would be no galaxies, stars, planets, or people. Even the complexity of the universe, the beauty of design, points to somebody who is a designer. 
Even Stephen Hawking, who is a, a, an atheist, says the odds against a universe like ours emerging out of something like the Big Bang are enormous. I, I think they are clearly religious implications. Some people say, well, given enough time and probability, things can happen. But if you think about it, what makes more sense is that there is a designer. Now, it takes more faith in some sense to be an atheist than it does to be a Christian. Because as Christians, we believe in, in an infinite divine creator of all things. As somebody who's not, then you have to assume that all these things that have happened in this random way has come to this point. And in some sense, that takes more faith. One philosopher gives this illustration. Imagine a man who is sentenced to death. And there are 50 uh, marksmen pointing their gun at, at, at this man. All fire six feet away. And not only and, and, and after they fire, not one bullet hits the man that they're supposed to hit. Since it is uh, possible that even an expert marksmanship could miss, even 50 could miss all at the same time. And when you think about this, even though they could miss all at the same time, you could not prove they missed on purpose, but you could reasonably conclude that something was not right. You could conclude that they conspired to miss on purpose. In other words, when you see something so uh, out of character, out of nature, then you begin to ask the question, you know what, it's easier to believe that there is a designer than there isn't a designer. But there's a third argument when you look at the creative order, is you look at mankind, uh, God's ultimate creation. And the question is, is a moral argument. And the moral argument is popular, uh, popularized by C.S. Lewis. He says this, if there is no set of moral ideas or true, uh, if no set of moral ideas were truer or better than any other, there would be no sense in preferring civilized morality to savage morality. Or Christian morality to Nazi morality. The omen you, the moment you say one moral is better than the other, you are in fact measuring them to an ultimate standard. Going back to the video you just saw, the question is this: What is the basis of morality? As uh, Fyodor Dostoevsky, uh, a Russian writer, said many years ago, "Without God, all things are permissible." And if you think about the logic of that, if there is no final authority, there is no final accountability, there's no objective standard in which we say something is right or wrong, then who becomes the standard? Well, it becomes the one who is most powerful. It becomes the one who is most influential. It becomes the one who is the most wealthy. And what ends up happening is that those who are powerful in the sense of communism, the ultimate authority is government. Well, we know th throughout history that the most, most atrocious um, governments that have ever existed are those that have denied the existence of God. After Fyodor Dostoevsky wrote those words, uh, after the Bolshevik uh, revolution in, in Russia, when the communist takeover happened, of course, religion was considered the opiate of the people, so they, they, they abolished all of religion. Communism in a society, elevated government as God itself. And what ended up happening was mass genocide. Every government in which God's existence was denied or suppressed has elevated, uh, uh, if you think about killing and genocide and all these other crimes of humanity. Why? Because there's no final accountability. 
So the question that, that we begin to ask as we look at creation is that all these, don't, it doesn't prove God's existence, but it points us to a higher authority, a higher reality. But here's the, the thing that, uh, as, as one, Tim Keller says, if there's no God, then there is no way to say one action is moral or immoral, but only I like this or I like that. But there's a second argument of God's existence. If God exists, not only do we see it in nature, but we should also have some sort of understanding that this God should communicate with his crea uh, creation. In other words, is God some, some abstract idea that it just existed and then disappeared, as some of the theists believed, the deists believed? Or is God someone who is also personal? Is God transcendent as well as being imminent? In the next few verses, the author not only talks about God's existence in terms of, of the heavens, he also talks about God's existence in terms of God's written word. And so in verse 7, he says, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The ordinances of the Lord are sure and altogether righteous. They are more precious than gold, pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, sweeter than the honeycomb. In verses 7 to 10, the psalmist moves from creation to God's special revelation. In other words, not only is this God the creator of all things, he cares enough to record for us on how we should live and how we should behave. But not only does he record us on how we should live and behave, he also describes who he is. And so we see throughout scripture the characteristics, uh, his personality, his attributes. So what is God like? Well, we know that he is eternal, that he doesn't change, that he is omnipresent, he is everywhere, that he's omniscient, he knows all things, and he's omnipotent, that he's all-powerful. That scripture to us gives us the special understanding that God himself has revealed us about himself. But the Bible just doesn't give us these abstract attributes. The Bible also then gives us a special revelation in a, in a, in a, in a, in a person. That God himself embodied human flesh. And so when you read through the Bible, it's not only a recording of what God has done, it's also who God is. And the greatest story of the Bible is this, that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish. That God took on human flesh, we call that incarnation, became just like us. So that he can live and die and be resurrected. And so the greatest testimony of God's existence is in the person of Jesus Christ. If you want to see what God is like, you read through the Gospels and you see what Jesus is like. And you know the most radical concept in the Bible is not that you should behave. <laughs> we have laws for that. In every religion, uh, most religions will tell you this, that the way you become righteous is that you do things for God, that you appease the gods, you make sacrifices to God, you become a moral person. And the more moral you are, the more God accepts you. That's sort of the way in which religion works. You earn your righteousness. 
But the Bible gives us a different picture of God. The Bible says this, that none of us are righteous. That none of us before God deserve salvation or, or eternal life. All of us deserve condemnation. But that God demonstrated his love for us in this. That we were the worst of sinners. That God died for us. And there's a beautiful word that the Bible describes. This word is called grace. And if there's one concept of Christianity that turns the world upside down, is this concept of grace. That you do not deserve salvation. And yet God has chosen to give to us. Not because we are worthy. But simply because he loves us. And the gospel message is what helps us to uh, uh, sort of uh, unpack some of the things that, that we encounter in our lives, like doubt. The, that the Bible helps us to understand that God is in control, no matter whether we see something or not, that, that we can live in faith rather than in doubt. If we are in despair, the Bible gives us an answer to how do you deal with despair, that despair is limited only. It, 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 we may be experiencing it for a short time, but ultimately there is greater hope. And the greatest message of the Bible is this, that death is not the end of, for humanity. That we have a life that is greater than our death. And that's what we talk about, is that the resurrection, that Jesus rose again. And so when you read through the Bible, it is not a Bible, it is not a story of this sort of distant God out there. It is a God who is very personal. And there's one thing that the Bible gives more than anything else in this world. You see, science does not give us hope. It gives us a little bit, a touch of that. But what it promises is, is technology. And we don't know what that technology would do. But the Bible guarantees, that no matter what happens, that there's hope for life. No matter what trials you're dealing with, no matter what suffering you go through, the Bible gives us hope. But there's one last argument that the psalmist goes through. He looks at number one, General revelation, creation. Number two, special revelation, the word of God. And then thirdly, he focuses upon himself. The third reality of God's existence is a transformed life. If God exists, then life transformation matters. Verse 11, by them is your servant warned in keeping them that there's a great reward. Who can discern his errors? Forgive my hidden faults. Keep your servant also from willful sins, that they may not rule over him, that they may be blameless, innocent of grand transgressions. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, O Lord my God, my rock and my redeemer. The greatest need for mankind is redemption. If you ever follow a story or watch a movie, there is something that resonates in humanity when a, a character that we see goes through this sort of brokenness, this darkness. And at the end of the story, that there is redemption, there is hope, and they are transformed people. That's, 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 that's a human desire in all of us. Because every single one of us can identify with brokenness. But you see, we don't want to be stuck in our brokenness. We want hope for our brokenness. And so what the psalmist says is this, who can redeem me? Who can uh, uh, help me be blameless? Who can take away my sins? Who can free me from the oppression of my own addiction? All these things that the psalmist is saying is that there's only one person. And that's the creator himself. Oh Lord, my rock and my redeemer. The reason that 
Christianity and, and, and God's existence matters is this. Without God's existence, really, there is no hope. That the only hope we have is in ourselves. And if there is no God, four things happen. One is that we become, man becomes the final authority. Which means that, that I become my own authority. And the more powerful you are, the more influential you are, the more wealth you have, then you, destroy, you, you control everybody else's authority as well. But again, there's injustice, inequity, and oftentimes when you look at that, man becomes the final authority is that in terms of, of how society is run, that injustice runs rampant. Secondly, there is no final accountability. When there is no God, who are you accountable to? Well, I could do whatever I want. And if you could do whatever you want, why not maximize your whole life at the expense of everyone else? And if you think about the logic of that, that if there is no God, then, then we can live as we please. And that's what Dostoevsky said. Without God, all things are permissible. But there's a third reality is if there's no God, there's no ultimate reason for morality. Why not steal? Why not cheat as long as you don't get caught? And lastly, without God, there is no ultimate sense of meaning and purpose. You know, one of the things that God has, the reality of God, and especially the reality of Jesus, the person of Jesus, helps me to understand that my purpose is not to live for myself. That God demonstrated his love for us in this, that why we were still sinners, he died for us. And the example that Jesus said is the example that he wants us to live. And there's something amazing about God's existence that helps us to understand that the greatest beauty in life are not the things that we possess, but in reality are the virtue, vir virtues that we possess. There was a, a, a New York Times best-selling book a few years back called When Breath Becomes Air. It's a story told about a, a neurosurgeon. His name is Paul Calanthe. And he tells a story about his impending death with brain cancer. He was in his 30s. And during this book, it's sort of a memoir that was actually published after his death. He talks about his conflict with religion and science. And he begins to describe his sort of journey of looking at science and then seeing the absence of what he found. He says, during my sojourn in ironclad atheism, the primary arsenal level against Christianity has been its failure on empirical grounds. Surely enlightened reason uh, offer more than, uh, of a coherent cosmos. And he begins to think, when I looked at the, the, the reality of the universe, there is no proof of God. Therefore, it is unreasonable to believe in God. He says, although I was raised in a devout Christian family where prayers and scripture reading were ritual, uh, slightly ritualistic, I, like most scientific types, came to believe in the plaus uh, plausibility of material conception of reality and ultimately scientific worldview that will grant complete metaphysics minus outmoded concepts like souls, God, bearded white men in robes. I spent a good chunk of my 20s trying to build a frame for such an endeavor. And then he says, the problem, however, eventually became evident. To make science the arbitrary of metaphysics is to banish not only God from the world, but also love, hate, 
meaning. To consider a world that is self-evidently not the world we live in. That's not to say that if you believe in meaning, you must also believe in God. It is to say, though, that if you believe that science provides no basis for God, then you are almost obligated to conclude that science provides no basis for meaning. And therefore, life itself does not have any. In other words, existential claims have no weight. All knowledge is scientific knowledge. And he begins to write how that question begin to lead him on a different journey because when you're dealing with brain cancer and your life is 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 temporal you begin to see a new reality of life death and god himself at the end of the book uh, or at the end of the story he says i return to the central values of christianity sacrifice redemption forgiveness because i found them so compelling There is a tension in the Bible between justice and mercy, between the old and the new. And the New Testament says you can never be good enough. Goodness is a thing, and you can never live up to. The main message of Jesus, I believe, is that mercy trumps justice every time. When you think about the existence of God, you cannot think of God's existence without the person of Jesus. And we as Christians believe that God exists, not because we have some philosophical argument, But we believe he exists because he has transformed our lives, changed our perspective, given us a new creation. 